about you. I did not like listening to mom and dad lecture on things that I should be or shouldn't be doing. Particularly those lessons that, you know, you're really going to regret this if you don't pay attention. Oftentimes for me, it was academics. I was a, a B student most of my life, but my, my dad would have these conversations, and, and it really stinks when your dad is your ride to school every day because he's a teacher, because you're, you're trapped. And he, he's on me on academics. He's on me on academics. What's worse is I knew from my grandmother that he was a C student. It's like, I'm a B student, and you're getting on me for this? Like, come on. But the reality is, many of those hard lessons that I didn't like to hear because I was stubborn and hard-headed, I wanted to do things my own way, I thought I knew better, I knew what was better for me, I knew better was my dad. It's like, you're not, you don't know what you're talking about, old man. You know, it really stinks when you grow older, and then you have to finally say, yeah, you were right. I wish I had listened. I wish, wished I would have listened more in class. I wish I would have not taken the lazy way out when I got to, to university and pursued some of those sciences that I was good at. You know, I wish I would have done the hard work of having to go through college chemistry and biology and been able to, to do physical therapy or something like that as a backup career. But you know what? Even in the midst of those, you learn. You learn that you must pay attention to the advice and counsels of others. Thankfully, I've had the opportunity to go and, and say, you know what, you're right. But how many of us, when we hear the word of God, ignore those instructions? Because we're stubborn and hard-headed. That we don't want to listen because the words are hard. They're hard to understand are hard to live out and so often we're like my stubborn self we think we know better we think we know the better way to live and it's anything but what we're being told that's what we're going to find in in john chapter 6 verses 41 through 71 this morning you know we we continue to slowly make our way through the gospel according to john and in just three more weeks we're going to pause for a little bit after it but but as we've been going through this first part of John, this first third of it, we've been seeing John emphasize over and over again this need to believe in Jesus, to believe that he is the son of God. To, he, he writes in a way to, to stack the evidence to show us that this is not just from Jesus. The prophets have said it. John the Baptist was declaring these things that Jesus is the one to come, the long-awaited Messiah. He's emphasized that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. All of these things John has been doing so that we may come to the place of belief, whether initial belief or growing and strengthened belief. But the problem is some of these things are hard. And they're about to get harder as we turn to John 6, 41 through 71 this morning. The question is, will we hear these words or will we ignore them because they are hard? And will we find it too late before we awaken and hear? So that's the question as we dive in this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. 
So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as, away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Friends, there are hard sayings in this text. Hard sayings. And yet, this is exactly why we must spend time here this morning and working through them, soaking in what Jesus has for us. And here's what I think the main idea of the, these 30 verses is, and what, Lord willing, the main idea of this sermon is. Jesus has some extremely hard teachings but there is no other in which to go, for he alone has the words of life.
Let me reiterate that. Jesus has some extremely hard teachings, but there is no other in which to go, for he alone has the words of life. We're going to unfold this main idea in two parts. One, words hard to understand. Point one, words hard to understand. And point two, words of eternal life. Words hard to understand and words of eternal life. First, words hard to understand. As we look at, at verses 41 through 59, this, this covers all of part one. But I think it's actually summed up best in verse 60. Look again when it says there in John 6, 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And indeed, it is true. This is hard sayings. Consider some of the sayings here in these verses. John 6, 41. I am the bread that came down from heaven. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me. Me draws him. John 6.50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. John 6.51, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6.53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 5.57, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. These are extremely hard and difficult sayings. They're hard in multiple ways. They're hard because they are tough sayings to figure out, but they're also hard in the fact that they aim right at the center of our hearts. They aim at who we are and our desperate need of Jesus. First, let's look at the hard sayings here as there's two particularly hard sayings in how they're summed up here. First, we have hard words of Christ's origin. Look again back at, at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And then verse 42, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he not now say, I have come down from heaven? Kind of like the rains coming down right now. Or hell. Even worse. Jesus said he came down from heaven. And this is a stumbling block for the Jews because it causes them to grumble and discuss amongst themselves about these things. This grumbling creates something. It prevents them from hearing what Jesus is actually saying. It's a great stumbling block. I love what J.C. Ryle says here. He says, We learn for one thing from this passage that Christ's lowly condition when he was upon earth is a stumbling block to the natural man. Let me repeat that. We learn from one thing from this passage that Christ's lowly condition when he was upon earth is a stumbling block to the natural man. It's a stumbling block because they look upon Jesus and stumble over his identity. They stumble because they think him to be a lowly carpenter's son, the son of Joseph. They stumble over his low being born and laid in a major because there was no room. He had no honor. He had no wealth. He had no power in his family. 
This lowly beginning causes the Jews to stumble over Christ because as they were eagerly waiting and expecting the Messiah, they expected him to come not as a lowly servant, but as one powerful, one of royal blood who would come in and conquer the Roman enemy and bring back rule in Israel to the Israelites. So as they look at the humble nature of Jesus, they think there is no way so they grumble. Wait, we, we know this guy's father and his mother. His father is Joseph. They grumble upon themselves. They miss the fact that Jesus is the one who has come down, who was equal from God, and yet did not count equality with God, as we know from Philippians 2.6. Or as one translation puts it, it was not something to be exploited. Jesus did not count equality or exploit his equalness with God and came humbly by taking on the form of a human servant and living among men for the point of rescuing man. But their grumbling hearts blinded them to this reality. Their grumbling hearts blinded them to this spiritual revelation that Jesus was teaching them and giving them. Their grumbling in disabled them from actually hearing. Friends, just a, a side application here. If your heart is full of grumbling as you prepare to come to worship, you'll never take in God's word and what it's intended to. Your grumbling will silence because it's like putting in uh, earplugs. You know, I, I've, I've got these great ear. Beats earplugs. It's great because I can put them in and turn on the music. Even when we drive, I can put this right one in, leave my left open so I can hear sirens. But I can tune out the kids in the back and all the noise that they make. When we grumble, it's like putting in those earbuds. It deafens us from actually hearing what God is calling us to hear. Check your hearts before you ever enter worship. If it's a grumbling heart, you will miss what God is trying to teach you. So let us come receptive and not grumbling. But this makes another problem because D.A. Carson, I think, sums it up better than I could. In his excellent commentary, he says, The grumbling was not only insulting but dangerous. It presupposed that divine revelation could be sorted out by talking the matter over and thus diverted attention from the grace of God. Their grumbling reveals their hardened and polluted hearts because they think somehow that they can, amongst this conversation amongst themselves, determine what is actually divine. They, they think that they can sort this out and come to a conclusion of their own accord, of their own decision on something that they are being taught about. Oh, what arrogance. Their grumbling deafens them. It causes them to stumble all the more because they miss the grace that has come in Jesus. They miss exactly who he is. They miss the fact he has come to bring truth. Oh, friends, see the danger of grumbling and hear what they needed to hear. Because here's the reality. They think they knew Jesus' dad. They think he knew they knew his mother. They think they knew Jesus. But here's the reality. Here, here's how the next few verses are going to be summed up best. You don't actually know my father. You don't know my father. Because if you did, you would have been drawn to me. 
If you actually knew and heard from my father and learned from him, you would come to me. Look at verses 44 through 46 here. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Remember, this is a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching because it's hard to understand and it pierces our hearts. Especially that of verse 44. When it says there, no one can come to me unless the father who sent him me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has actually taught this in this section of text. Look back to John six thirty seven. It says there, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the positive take of this. This is the reassuring and affirmation. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But here's the negative end of it. John 6, 44, again, hear these words. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father must draw us if we are to believe in Jesus. The Father himself must draw us if we are to believe in Jesus. The double use of this is makes it even all the more important to pay attention to that it, it is essential the Father draws. Why is it essential that the Father draws? Because we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Does not Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 say this? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. How can dead men call themselves to life? If we're dead, we cannot call ourselves to life. We cannot choose that which is spiritually good. Because our sin has blinded us. Our hearts are so hardened and darkened by sin that we, of our own doing, cannot choose God. We cannot choose Christ apart from the Father drawing us to himself. And here's where we, we struggle with this. One, because we don't like what it actually communicates. We don't like the fact that we are called so dead in sin that we can't even choose what is good. We like to think more highly of ourselves instead of what Christ, what our God teaches us here. But in doing so, we also miss the beauty of how the Father draws sinners to himself in such a remarkable and yet simple way. What does verse 45 add? It says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Well, this is a reference from our scripture reading that we've already read this morning of Isaiah 54, 13. But let me read that verse again from Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, 
and great shall be the peace of your children. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Jesus has come to bring this messianic age that Isaiah long, long ago wrote about, telling that he will draw people to himself, that he will teach them, and he will bring peace. Jesus is the one bringing this peace, but it's important for us to understand that one must be taught and learn from God. But how has God done this? How has he done this drawing? Look at what it goes on to add or say here in particular, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. To hear from the Father and to learn from the Father leads to Jesus. Because the Father teaches through what? A word. It's always been through a word. The father teaches first through his voice speaking to that of Abraham in covenant. He sends his angels to speak to the prophets and give a message or speak directly to them. And that word goes out through the prophets. And in these last days, it's come through Jesus Christ. The son speaks and, and reverberates what the word of the father is. Friends, do you see how the father draws he draws in a manner of speaking a word. He spoke and the world was created. It was all good. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and there was land. He spoke and there was animals. He spoke and there was man. How much more so is it that he speaks to restore creation and make it new again? It's always through his word and his spirit that he draws sinners to himself. It is not through any other means, but through his word and the spirit together in tandem. Don't let us be mistaken. It's not just the spirit that draws. Sometimes we like to say, oh, it, the spirit is leading me to do this. The spirit and the word are a tag team. They go together. They're, they're not separate. Some of you men, maybe even some of you women, if you're like my great grandmother, you watch some of the, that old school WWF wrestling, WCW, those tag team traditions of winning. The, the tag team duos could not be stopped. The word and the spirit are like some of those great tag team champs that always were victorious, that never could be beaten. The word and the spirit work together in tag team, in unity, to draw us to the Lord himself. That's what the Lord uses to draw us. Friends, it is essential. This word draws us from our spiritual lethargy, from our death to be awakened and to be alivened through its truth. Because this word communicates to us who this holy God is and who we rightly are as sinful men and needing to be brought to life. See the beauty of which God goes to, in order to draw us to himself, that he would speak a word to sinners in order to quicken our dead hearts and bring them to life. This is the link that God goes to to draw us to himself. So first and foremost, friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, we need to understand the essential of the word as we do evangelism and discipleship. It is through the word being reverberated 
being re-proclaimed, being echoed out that sinners are drawn to God and taught what it means to follow Jesus. We cannot say we're doing evangelism if we are actually not declaring the word of God. Again, I, I never want to discourage people, invite people to church. Please continue to do that. But that's not evangelism. That might be pre-evangelism, but it's not evangelism. Evangelism is the declaring of the word of God out. It's echoing that word so others can hear the truth and have their hearts quickened and awakened by that word. As they're taught, here is the holy God who created you that you're accountable to. Here is the God who, that you as his creature have rebelled against and rejected. And the only thing you deserve is death. And yet God has loved you so that he has poured out his love for you in sending his only son, Jesus, to live and die on a cross. And if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. It's this word, this gospel, that as it goes out, it cuts to the heart. Was the author of Hebrews wrong? As he writes here in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let us speak this word that it may cut at hearts, both in evangelism and as we disciple others, helping them follow Jesus but it's also another thing for us to understand that we need to hold to this, that we need to trust this word and have assurance that it and it alone is what brings life. Look here at verse 47 where it picks back up. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Those who believe, who are drawn to the Spirit, who have already professed belief in Jesus, guess what? You can have certainty that the Father has drawn you. That the Father has labored to this point to draw you out of death and into life. Christians, see how marvelous something so hard is for your heart. Because it reassures us this is the link that God goes to. I was dead in my sin, and Christ still died for me while I was a sinner. Paraphrasing Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has pursued us through his word, through revealing himself through that word. And as it goes out, he draws us. He breaks away and chips at that heart of stone, awaking us. So that we may come and taste the bread of Jesus and live if we will but believe. So rest assured of the hope we have in Jesus. But there's another problem here. Jesus goes on. He he's makes clear that the father must draw in order for us to come to him. But then he adds another hard saying beginning in verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that. One may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Enters hard saying number two. Jesus invites us to eat a bread by saying, eat of my flesh. 
And this again causes grumbling amongst the people. Consider what it says there in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus has told them that his flesh is this bread, this life to the world. So how in the world? Certainly by no means no one is taking him literally here. They don't think he's inviting them to cannibalism. But they are confused because of the very fact that people are told not to eat the blood of an animal. And yet Jesus goes on to say, drink my blood. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 9, 4. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And yet Jesus teaches the people are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Look what he, Jesus goes on to say in verses 53 and 54. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's encouraging us to take this flesh and this blood together to eat the very life. This goes against it. But what in the world is being meant by all of this? What is meant to eat of this flesh and blood in order to have life? Look at these four verses in this section. Look back at John 6.35 first. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.40 For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These four verses highlight what, what Jesus is getting at here. It's ultimately in, in taking and eating the flesh and blood is about belief. It's about believing him. But in particular, believing him and that he must lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. Friends, some of us in here may think, why in the world reiterate this issue of the fact that Jesus must die on the cross for our sin? That he is an atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sin. We think, sure, we know that. We know that, Pastor. But here's the reality of this truth and one we need to, to sink deep in our hearts and pay close attention to. There's an ever-growing trend in thinking that people or that Jesus went to the cross just as a means of cruel people who couldn't stand his teaching. And that was it. That it had nothing to do with sacrifice. It had nothing to do with his blood being shed to cover our sins. That's a popular teaching growing out. There are certain churches that deny the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross. Therefore, as you labor to do evangelism, as you labor to help others in their discipleship and teach them what it means to follow Jesus, you need to understand the essentialness of this. Understanding this is essential for true saving faith. 
That Jesus had to go to the cross in order to lay down his life for us, in order to take away the sins of the world. For how else could our blood be made white as snow? Does Isaiah 1.18 not rightly say, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It is through the blood of Jesus being shed that our sins are made white as snow. The cross is essential and Jesus must go there. He teaches his disciples and all who would follow him that he must suffer and die. By the shedding of his own blood, by his side being pierced on the cross of Christ. It is essential we understand this and believe it. Because it is here that life is found. And here alone. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Life is found through Jesus and trusting in his death on the cross and his rising from the grave and defeating the curse of sin and death. That his sacrifice alone saves us. Nothing else saves us. Friends, I don't care if you were born and grew up in this church or another church like it. That's not the assurance of your salvation. No more than it was the Jews in their birthright. They thought because of their Jewishness, they were declared righteous and right with God. But hear the words of Jesus, the King. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Jews trusted that their fathers ate the bread that came down from heaven, manna. And that by eating it, that was their assurance. But Jesus says, look, you, you, you thought this was the true bread of heaven? Your fathers ate of it and they died. They still died. Many of them in the wilderness because they disbelieved God. That's not their birthright. That's not them having life. Here is life. It's found in me and me alone. Your Jewishness it doesn't mean anything. You must believe in me if you want to live. I am the true bread of heaven. I'm the one who's come down and sent by my Father. My Father has sent me to reconcile sinners to himself by my death on the cross. You're not righteous enough to be entering of your own accord. But go back to verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. To believe and eat of the flesh and drink of the blood. To believe in Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. Is Jesus' righteousness becoming ours? It's him making us alive in Christ. He abides in us. And that is our declared righteousness. That is our assurance. That is our hope. Friends, Jesus comes to abide in those who believe. His righteousness is already made our own if we believe. Friends, that's freeing. That's the freedom of the gospel. Will we rest in that and that alone? 
Because the question is, with all these hard teachings, how do we respond? That's now where we more briefly turn in our second point this morning. The words of eternal life. Again, these are hard sayings. One must be drawn by the Father to come. To believe. So how do people respond? Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But follow 61 through 66 with me. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. As we hear the hard teachings of Jesus, what is going to be our response? Are we going to turn and run away like the many did? Are we going to turn away in disbelief at these hard sayings of Jesus? Are we going to turn away because he, he ruins the thought of comfortable Christianity, of easy believism, or of the fact that we are good and just need a little help along the way? That's why many turn away here. Because Jesus makes them uncomfortable that their, their Jewish religious background, their traditions, don't save them. So they turn away. They turn away upon hearing this call to discipleship, this call to actually hear and learn from the Father, that they must be drawn to the Father. They tuck, hide, and run. Jesus' teachings are hard. You know, many church planners and, and many uh, church revitalization strategists would tell you to actually turn and not teach passages like this. But the problem is, we don't actually follow Jesus. Jesus would be considered one of the worst church planners and church revitalization guys there is today. Again, look at what happens there in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They hear these hard teachings and they run because they don't want something to do with this kind of Jesus. They want an easy Jesus. They want a Jesus that conforms to their thoughts and their ways. They don't want a Jesus who confronts them with the truth about themselves and the depth of our sin. So notice what takes place after this. The many turn away. We need to hear the warning of this, but we need to actually see the call that we're being called to is what Simon does. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? As we hear these hard teachings of Jesus, we need to see that he and he alone has the words of eternal life. Yes, his teachings might be hard, 
They might sting a little bit as we sit under them and listen to them as they work in us and and conform us more to his image as they confront us with sin. But we need to see that he and he alone has life in him. To whom else shall we go? Shall we go to Muhammad? Shall we go to Buddha? Shall we go to the 330 million Hindu gods? Is life found there? Is life found in tradition? Is life found in family? Is life found in America? Is life found elsewhere? The words of life belong to Christ and Christ alone. So yes, some of Jesus' teachings are hard, Christian, and those exploring Christianity. But to where, whom shall you go and find life except in Jesus? He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has come to reveal the truth about the Father and make him known to us. We cannot see the Father even as we learn and and sit under his teachings. But Jesus has seen him. He was with him and came to heaven or from heaven to earth, taking on human flesh to suffer and die so that he may make him known to us and so that we may be reconciled to him. Will you trust this Jesus for your life and submit yourself to his hard teachings and allow them to continue working in your heart? Christian, let that be true of each and every one of us. Believe in Jesus. And friend, if you're here and you don't know this Jesus, I hope you see there is no way to life. There is nowhere else to go to have life except in Christ. Believe today in this Jesus. Believe today in him for life so that you too may live in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord.